Good morning. It's good to see all of you this morning. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5 this morning. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to actually kind of turn over to Ephesians chapter 6 as well as we kind of look at this unit of text this morning. But again this morning, I want to tell you about a, a historical figure whose name is Charles Harrison Mason. Charles lived from 1864 to 1961. He was born to freed slaves in 1864 near Shelby County, Tennessee. Uh, but having moved to Plumersville, Arkansas, Charles nearly died of tuberculosis as a child and was miraculously healed of his disease. After that experience, he consecrated his life to God. And at 14 years of age, where's our teenagers in the room today? We've got some teenagers? You guys listen to this, okay? At 14 years of age, he consecrated his life to God and was baptized, ordained, and licensed to preach in the Black Baptist Church in that region. Now, in his preaching, Mason focused on holiness and on sanctification and that idea of becoming more and more like Christ, of the, the old things going away and the new life coming in, just like we looked at last week, emphasizing a spirit-led life and personal holiness. But because of his teaching, he and another minister, Charles Prince Jones, who taught the same beliefs, the same beliefs were ordered to leave the Baptist church. Now, the two men started a new church, a, a denomination that formed, and it was called the Church of God in Christ Fellowship. Now, to make mention of this historical black Christian leader is not to endorse the held belief of the Church of God in Christ denomination that you must both be saved and then experience a separate baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is always manifest by speaking in tongues. Instead, I want us to focus on the reality of a godly leader who ordained more than 350 white Pentecostals throughout Mississippi, Tennessee, Arkansas, Florida, Louisiana, Alabama, and Georgia. One writer noted that where local congregations of the Church of God in Christ were founded, and this was in the late 1800s during the Reconstruction period, that black and white saints worshiped together. They worked together. They evangelized together in an interracial fellowship. Yet in 1914, because of racism, white members of the Church of God in Christ separated and formed a white denomination called the Assemblies of God. But Charles Mason continued to preach and to proclaim the gospel that God's church is made one of every nation, tongue, and people that are upon the face of the earth. And that the church is the body of Christ, Ephesians 1.22. That Christ is the head of the body, the one church, Ephesians 4, 4 through 5. And that God rules in one faith, in one Lord, in one baptism. For Charles Mason, the unity proclaimed in Ephesians was God's vision for the church. And I agree with him completely. And no matter the earthly realities, those should not negate and separate us from the truth of the gospel. But then he said this, and this is a very specific application that I want us to carry today. And we're going to come back to this in a little bit in this, in this sermon. But he began to speak about unity, saying this, that to speak the language of unity in the midst of a nation filled with racial division was in a sense to speak another language. It was a type, he even would go on to say, of speaking in tongues, if you will, a different language in the midst of all of the other rhetoric going around, such that contradicting the prevalent separatist discourse of the time would be the message of the church. Now, brothers and sisters, while not identical to 1914, we continue to face division, a division that threatens the church at times. It's division over politics, it's division over race, it's division over um, medical restrictions with COVID-19. And now it's carrying over into vaccinations. But the church is called to speak a different message, a different language, a message of unity. The same message that Charles Mason proclaimed, the same message that Paul proclaimed in Ephesians, that truth that we turn to this morning. Now, I highlight the church of God in Christ and mention the assemblies of God this morning because the passage that we're going to consider today contains a favorite verse for those two denominations. Now, misunderstood, 
I believe that verse only further divides us as the people of God, but rightly understood, it unifies us both in holiness of living and in a hunger for the Spirit of God. So I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5, and when you find verse 15, I invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's Word today. Beginning in verse 15, hear the word of the Lord. Pay careful attention then to how you live. Not as unwise people, but as wise. Making the most of the time because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And don't get drunk with wine which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you that your word is so clear and the clear call that it is for us to live in wisdom and not in foolishness, of what it means to, to live in the light and not in darkness. And then this clear call today as we are looking at this bigger reality of the true unity, not just a, an empty unity, but the true substance of our unity in the body, how there's diversity, but there's a oneness to the body, that today you call us to live with this one fear, this fear of Christ. And so teach us today what that means, that we may get a heart of wisdom. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Verse 21 contains a key truth for us today as the people of God, and it's this. We are to fear Christ. We Every one of us in this room today are to fear Christ. Now, fear is one of those words that when we use it most of the time, we, we mean we dread something and we, we would rather avoid it. You know, I, I fear snakes or I fear spiders, and so I'd rather avoid them. Some people, fear heightens their emotions. Some people, they, they fear going to the doctor. Some people fear speaking in public. But in this passage, we are not being called to avoid Christ, to, to, to shrink away from him, but to honor him, to revere him, to respect him deeply. Now, here's the truth that I want us to walk away with today. If you're taking notes, this is the main idea of this text we must honor Christ above all else. We, as the people of God, we must honor Christ above all else. And we're going to see how this unfolds in this text today. And I want you to be convinced of this one central truth. It's simple enough that if a toddler were in the room right now, they could walk away with that idea. But it's so profound that you'll spend the rest of your life endeavoring to live it. That we must honor Christ above all else. First of all, we'll see that we must honor Christ above all else so that we don't waste our lives. We must honor Christ above all else so that we don't waste our lives. These valuable, incredible lives that God has given us as a gift, we will waste them if we are not living to honor Christ with them. Look at it in the text, beginning in verse 15. Pay careful attention then to how you live. Not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. When he says, pay careful attention, it implies awareness. Now, I want to do a little exercise with us today. How many of you have one of these? 
Yeah, got a few head nods, all right. Take it out real fast. How many of you have a, an Apple phone? See, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a simple person. I can't understand Android and all the things. So Apple works for me because I don't have to do uh, anything on the back end. But in your Apple phone, if you've got it out, go ahead and take it out. If you will go to your settings app, you tap settings, and then you scroll down just a little bit. There's one that, that's got like an hourglass, and it says screen time. You tap that, and then all of a sudden, it generates a report for you. And if you actually want to even go a little bit deeper, you can say, see all activity and tap that. And then everything that you've been doing on your phone appears for you in a measured quantity. How many minutes or hours you've spent on this app or that app, and it just goes through. Immediately, you can be aware of how much time you averaged on your phone in the last week. But if you want to pay careful attention then you can click see all activity and then be able to see exactly how many hours and minutes you've spent in each app. You see, the more aware you are of the details of how you spend your time, the more you can consciously make decisions to do something about how you spend your time. You see, some people, once they get that awareness of what they're spending time on, you can go into another feature where you actually set limits. Now, you can override those limits, and some of you have figured out how to do that as well. But you can actually say, I want it to, like, time out. I don't want to be able to use this app after 30 minutes of use or one hour of use. Because if I do, I know it's not really that good for me. Now, does your screen time report suggest that you're honoring Christ? I'm just going to present the question. Does it suggest that you're making the most of your time? Does your screen time report suggest that you're living as wise rather than unwise? Now, notice I'm not trying to be legalistic. I didn't suggest that there's a certain amount of time that, you know, if you go past this, then you're, you're really not living wisely because we all have very different lives. We use these computers called cell phones for different things. A lot of you do a lot of your work on your phone. And so I'm not trying to establish like, well, my standard is this. So I'm going to impose my standard on you. But that's what we do a lot of times to one another, if we're real honest. I come up with a standard, and then I expect everyone else to live according to it. But that's not what God's Word is doing in this moment. Instead, it's asking us collectively as the people of God in every age, the age of cell phones, to pay careful attention then to how you live. Because this is a big part of your life. Not asking you, did you spend more time on social media than you did your Bible app? Well, then shame on you. It's not what we're doing today. Instead, we're paying careful attention then to how we live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. And because the days are evil, the evil one is going to use anything, anything to cause us to do evil. And it calls us, if you just work it back the other way, to not make the most of the time. To, to live as unwise rather than wise. And to not pay careful attention, but just let the days go by. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is, which leads us to the next reason that we must honor Christ above all else. And it's this, because that is the Lord's will. That is the Lord's will. Of all the things that we don't know sometimes of, gosh, is it the Lord's will that I do this or this? We do know definitively that it is the Lord's will that we honor Christ above all else in every sphere of our lives. I mean, look at it in the text. He says, and don't get drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled by the Spirit. You see, in this simple admonition, we're being called to an orientation of living that really builds its foundation on Christ. You see, the Spirit's not available apart from Christ. It was only through Christ that we received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, understand what the Lord's will is. 
But this isn't like Curly in the movie City Slickers who tells Mitch, do you know what the secret to life is? This. To which Mitch says, your finger? Curly continues, one thing, just one thing. You stick to that and the rest don't matter. Which leaves Mitch saying, what's the one thing? To which Curly responds, that's what you have to find out. Seriously, this is really how some of us treat the will of God. This elusive mystery caped in this mysterious language that hopefully somehow we'll figure out in this life, calling it faith. But that's not what God does. This entire letter of Ephesians reveals the will of God for your life and mine. This entire Bible reveals the will of God for your life and mine. You see, the 2% of your life that's not explicit in the Bible, the name of your future spouse, which exact city that you'll live in, unless it's Dothan, Alabama, or something, you know, something like that, whether to take the job or not, that 2% of the unknown can be guided by the 98% that is known. Your spouse, your future spouse, should love God. They should possess character and conduct and care that reveals Christ in their life. They should love the church. They should serve and honor you. I can't tell you his or her name, but I can tell you exactly what they ought to be like according to God's word. And so it cuts out the mystery of, you know, there's a lot of bad, but I bet there's some good buried in there. That's not what this says. This says there might be a lot of good, but there's actually bad buried in there, apart from Christ Jesus. Because all of us at our core have a bad heart. We're all in need of a new heart. That's what the scriptures teach. So when you look often and say all this good or all this bad, you're just judging from the surface and God's word again and again. Even the appointing of King David was not based on appearance. That was Saul. King Saul was taller. King King Saul was stronger. King Saul was the physical obvious choice. But that's not how God makes determinations. That's not how God deals with people. He deals with them according to the heart. And his word says that all of us have a heart that needs salvation. We established that last week. The greatest need of every person is salvation from sin. But let's work backwards through from verse 21 and go back into this to kind of see it, to see how it unfolds and how the explicit will of God is revealed in this passage. So first of all, what we see in verse 21, which is kind of our key verse this morning, is submitting to one another in fear, in the fear of Christ. Now, one scholar said of this submitting to one another that it is a voluntary yielding to one another in love. That, that what it means to submit is to voluntarily yield to one another in love. Now, the best way to condition yourself to voluntarily yield to one another in the body, in love, is found in verse 20. Let's just go back. Giving thanks always for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Gratitude is one of the most liberating pursuits a person will ever experience. I love to listen to podcasts, and I try to listen to really world-class leaders, but a common thread that I've seen through a lot of these podcasts and these interviews with world-class leaders is this. They're receiving coaching. They're paying people, professionals, to coach them, and one of the constant threads in their coaching is this. You need to cultivate gratitude in your life such that some of these top performers in their industries— they, they, they start the day with a gratitude journal where they write down things they're grateful for. Now, many of these, they're not thanking God for these things. They're just saying, I'm thankful for my wife. 
I'm thankful for my children. I'm thankful for these things. And they're realizing the positive effect that it's having in their life. Well, guess what? For 2,000 years, God's been saying that. This is not new, but it is true. And so for us as the people of God, we need to cultivate this practice of exactly what it says in verse 20 of giving thanks for everything. I'll tell you right now, that's one of the the harder things in my own life. Then when somebody says, hey, how's it going? Is for me to think about the challenges, the things that are going on that are kind of negative or whatever, and to report those things first. A practice in my own life is I need to lead. When I come home at the end of the day, when I talk to an old friend that I haven't connected with in a while, I need to lead with gratitude of saying, here, here are things that I'm grateful for. And so I offer myself as a work in progress, maybe to encourage you on the road that we're both traveling together. In short, by constantly reminding each other of the things that we have to be grateful for, we, we begin to cultivate this atmosphere of gratitude that causes us to be somewhat in a position. You see, I'm, I'm much more likely to voluntarily yield to you and love, Liz, if I love you and if I've given thanks for you than if I'm not. And so that's important for us to see. But how do we cultivate this liberating practice of giving thanks always for everything? We'll just go back up one more verse, verse 19. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making music in your heart to the Lord. In short, by constantly reminding each other of how much we have to give thanks for within the body. K-Love, Life Songs, Ricky Draper, They are helping us learn songs that we can sing and quote. But what about the front end of that verse? Speaking to one another in psalms. You see, the most powerful songs are the ones most scripturally saturated, the ones most doctrinally accurate, the ones most theologically robust. Rick, thank you and your incredible team for training us to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making music to the Lord with our hearts. But how do we get to a place where we really live out verse 19? Look at verse 18. And don't get drunk with wine, which leads only to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit. It's at this point that I wanna come back to my introduction And having mentioned that for some in the church of God and Christ and in the assemblies of God, this verse, verse 18, is a favorite. Now, please hear me. What I'm about to share with you is not the endorsed interpretation from these denominations of this verse. Instead, this is the interpretation I have both heard and seen here in New Orleans among other relationships across denominational lines. You see, the line of thinking goes this way. In the warning not to get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but instead be filled with the Spirit, many have taken the liberty to say, because it's not what the text says. It's not even the same words when you see, don't be drunk and don't be filled, but be filled. But they've taken the liberty to kind of crunch that together and say, we don't get drunk on wine, we get drunk on the Spirit. Such then becomes a rationale for falling out, running around, swinging from the chandeliers. But notice, by simply reading the next verse, verse 19, Paul explicitly tells it what it means to look like to be filled with the Spirit. He says, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, speaking and making music in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in fear of Christ. You see, the text actually has these three participles that come from this one central idea of be filled with the Spirit. Even this idea that we're looking at in verse 21 of submitting is a participle. It's a way of manifesting and experiencing what it is to be filled with the Spirit. But that's not a part that we often talk about. That a real spirit-filled life is seen in me submitting, yielding to one another in love. This verse around us, 
These verses around a single verse help us understand what is meant by this verse that has been abused in some context. But the big idea here is that we must honor Christ above all else so that we won't waste our lives, number one. Number two, because doing so is the will of the Lord. But then finally, what I want us to see and what unfolds in the end of this chapter and then the beginning to the next is that we must honor Christ above all else because the ripple effect of doing so is exactly what we need. It's exactly what we need. The ripple effect of honoring Christ above all else produces this ripple effect into our world and into our lives that we are desperate for. But we didn't understand maybe that it all started from whether I really have a deep-seated fear and honor and respect for Christ above all else, that he's number one. I want you to see it in the text, beginning in verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of the body. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. Do this to present He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as Christ, as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord because this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may have a long life in the land. Fathers, Do not stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in training and instruction to the Lord, of the Lord. Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as you would Christ. Don't work only while being watched, only as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, do God's will from your heart. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people, knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. And masters, treat your slaves the same way without threatening them, because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. So much could be said here, expounding about marriage and family And in this specific context of slaves and masters, what does this mean? But we got to start with the marriage relationship because that's where the text takes us first. You see, we can't separate marriage from the reality that it's only when we honor Christ above all else that our marriages will thrive the way that God intended them to thrive. You see, I, I can't tell you how many times people have taken issue with verse 22 the call for wives to submit to their own husbands as to the Lord. But see, what most people don't realize is that if you have a problem with verse 22, then you implicitly or inherently have a problem with verse 21 because the verb of verse 21 is the verb of verse 22. Hear me carefully. In the Greek, there's no verb in verse 22. The way we translate verse 22 uses the verb from verse 21. So more literally translated, verses 21 and 22 would read like this. And submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, to your own husbands is to the Lord. And then he keeps going. And you see now how he's applying what is going to take place in the church of our voluntary yielding to one another in love. He just steps right into the marriage relationship because he knows he's speaking to many married couples. Not exclusively, Paul himself not married, but he knows that there's gonna be married couples in the church. So he is immediately applying this reality that just as in the church, we ought to be voluntarily submitting to one another in love. He then hops into marriage and says, wives, be voluntarily submitting 
to, to your husband in love. That's the weight of this. That's the verb of this. That's the grammar of this. Someone unwilling to read further might think, well, gosh, this is really kind of heavy on wives, but not so much on husbands. Brothers, the call to you as a husband is to love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In other words, your love will certainly include voluntarily yielding yourself in love to your wife, but it will supersede that manifestation of love and instead is to mirror the self-denial of Christ, not only in the ultimate act of love on the cross, but in every self-denying moment before that one. Consider Jesus. I mean, just consider this. He wanted to be alone. Any men in this room ever just want to be alone? Want to withdraw? But what we see in the Gospels is that many times when it was described that Jesus withdrew to be alone and to be in prayer, it's usually followed by statements like this. And when his disciples found him, in other words, they're playing hide and seek, Where's Jesus? And they're looking. When they find him, it's like, everybody's looking for you over and over again. He's withdrawing. He needs to be alone. And then they're coming and everybody's looking for you. Yet Jesus continued to go to the people and heal their diseases, cast out the demons, feed them, and proclaim the kingdom of God. But Paul doesn't stop with a simple what would Jesus do challenge. He substantiates the actions of Christ as having great significance in the life of the church. This means that the self-denying love of a husband should not be done just as a means of gaining some awesome husband standing or notoriety. Hey, look at me, I'm I'm an awesome husband. It's a means to something more, namely sanctification. I mean, look at verse 26. It clearly says, to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of the water of the word. Husbands, as Christian husbands, your self-denying love for your wife is towards the end that your wife will be more holy. There's one author that said this, marriage isn't intended to make us happy, it's intended to make us holy. And that's a complete reorientation from the word of God on why your marriage exists. And you say, so I'm supposed to give up happiness to pursue holiness? Yes. And in that, you find happiness unlike you've ever known before. Because that's the true blessed life that God gives us in Christ. How is that? Because Christ is in you. You see, when your wife sees you denying yourself, even though you're tired, even though you've worked hard all day, just as your wife has, even though you, you would like to just sit down and watch TV or read a book, you set aside those things in order to serve your wife, to wash the dishes, to help with the laundry, to care for the children, to talk through an issue. And at the end of the day, you, you ex- exhaustedly collapse in your bed and sleep well because you have voluntarily yielded in love because you have given up yourself because you have been filled with the Spirit. A spiritual empowering that is about self-denial and love of Christ in you. And it changes her. It draws her. It deepens her respect for you. It solidifies her devotion to you as her husband, just as Christ captures the heart of the church in the same way. But notice, he also, in verse 26, tells us the means of this sanctifying work of Christ. He says, the word, washing her with the water of the word. Husbands, are you serving your wife the word? When you make decisions that impact your family, your wife and your children, are they decisions in accordance with and in light of your pursuit of God's will in his word? Do you share about what you're reading and thinking about in God's word with your wife and your children? Do you read the Bible to your family? There's not one right way to do this. One prescribed time, one prescribed approach. But there is one essential ingredient. And it's the word. We must be scripture fed as a church. And so must your marriage if it is to thrive. Now, I hope to circle back to this passage in a sermon series on marriage 
because there is so, so much here to consider and apply. But I'll sum it up in this way. Your marriage will thrive as you honor Christ, each of you, as revealed in the word of God. Paul leads this passage by establishing the church as the training grounds. So how are you doing here? Are you voluntarily yielding to one another in love? I would say that's a predictor of how you're going to be in your family, just as Paul says, what you're doing at home is a predictor of how you'll lead in the church. The primary arena in which Christ has called us to to fear him and to honor him is the church. And as we, FBNO, honor Christ above all else, the ripple effect begins to spread, Paul says. First, it spreads into our marriages, and that's why it's important to note how verse 22 depends on verse 21 for its verbal aspect. Paul has not left the church and is now shifted to talking about marriage. He's simply helping people see how this flows into your families. Follow the ripple, he says. It naturally moves into your marriage and transforms the way that you see and treat and serve and respect one another. Keep following the ripple, he says in verse one of chapter six, because it it goes right into how you parent. In honor, respect, and fear of Christ, children and Christian families are to obey their parents in the Lord, for this is right. Paul then speaks to fathers again in verse four. Again in fear, honor, and respect of Christ, reproving them not to exasperate their children, not to make their children angry. Like being so heavy on them that it just drives them to this angry place. But instead, to bring them up in the, in the training and instruction of the Lord. In other words, fathers, model and teach your children what it means to fear Christ above all else. Let them see it in your marriage and how you're denying yourself, giving up yourself in service and in love to your wife. And let them see it in your love for the church of Jesus Christ and how you lift up those around you how your words and your actions benefit the hearer, how everything about your life, when you're here and when you're at home, it models that you apparently honor Christ above everything else because you are honoring Christ everywhere you go and everything you say and everything you do. Now, parents, mothers and fathers, your child should see Christ in every aspect of your parenting. But it's at this point when we say that we're supposed to be Christ-like and reveal Christ in our parenting that some people say, oh, Chad, are you just saying that we're supposed to just let everything slide and be all lovey-dovey all the time? I mean, sometimes you got to be firm with your kids. Sometimes you have to do this. You see, your question reveals your ignorance of the Word of God. just going to be honest. If you think that Christ just let everything slide, then you don't understand the cross. If you think that Christ didn't confront sin, you haven't read where he flipped over tables and where he was constantly responding to the critics of his day. He didn't let things slide. And it wasn't always lovey-dovey. His disciples were perplexed at times because they didn't understand what he meant. He spoke truth to them. He spoke clearly to them. But there was this aspect of them that didn't get it yet. And there's gonna be things that you're teaching your children they don't get yet. That doesn't mean you give up. That doesn't mean you begin to to, to become lax in your parenting. No, you give them the word of God. You train them in righteousness. You model for them. You speak to them. You do all that you can to honor Christ in your parenting. But brothers and sisters, you won't do that if you don't read the word. One essential ingredient. The word is what you're supposed to be using to wash and purify the church. That's what Christ does. If your marriage and your parenting is going to have any salt to it, any cleansing effect, it's going to be the word. You say, well, gosh, are you saying I got to go to seminary? No, just read the word and just share it. Just talk about it. The things you don't understand, say, I don't understand. And I promise you that leads to these beautiful, rich conversations in your marriage and in your family. If you're not reading, take, responsible for, take responsibility for that. Don't, don't blame the preacher. Don't blame the church. Don't blame your work schedule. Don't blame it on your dislike for reading. Just take responsibility for not knowing what Christ is like and how it might be that you could reflect and reveal Christ in your parenting. And just take the responsibility that I'm going to cultivate the habit of reading God's word. If I have to start with just one verse a day, I'm going to start that habit because I need it. 
Let this be that wake-up call that people experience in a doctor's office where they're like, if you don't change your life, you're going to die. And all of a sudden, a person's like, well, then I guess I can go on a walk once a day. Or I guess I can eat one vegetable a day. All of a sudden, they begin to say, I guess I need to start somewhere. Let this be that wake-up call. If I don't have the Word of God coming into my life, I'm going to die. My marriage is going to die. My parenting is going to die. You've got to be Scripture-fed. We have got to be Scripture-fed. But Paul doesn't stop just with the family and kind of like hit a barrier, and then it starts to kind of come back. He doesn't stop at the family. And sometimes that's how we, we want to treat it. It's, it's just us who have gathered this place this morning. Most of us in this room would say, we're, we're a believer, I'm a follower of Christ. And, and that, that, that ripple starts to come in our marriage and we welcome it. It starts to come into our family and we welcome it. But then Paul does something right here where the ripple goes out further than we expected. It, it goes a little further. It's a little bit more of a wake than we realized. Because he follows it right out the front door of their gathering and into the Roman world. And part of the Roman world was this institution called slavery. And a few comments are in order today concerning slavery in the first century. First, it was not chattel slavery as existed in America, but could be just as oppressive and cruel. That said, because the first century Roman slavery institution is distinct in many ways from what transpired in America in our own history, we need to be mindful as believers in how we compare and contrast the two. In other words, we need to be careful that we're not comparing apples to apples when it's actually apples and oranges in some ways. Second, we need to acknowledge that we, Believers in the body of Christ are at a very critical stage of true healing and conciliation in the body of Christ in our country concerning race. So passages like this one can easily offend, they can result in carelessly spoken words, or they can lead us to jump to conclusions that are not accurate. So we need to be mindful. Third, we need to understand that it was normative and prevalent in the first century. But to say that it was normative and prevalent does not mean that it was right, but simply that it touched and impacted most lives. And that's why Paul is speaking to it. Fourth, we want to see Paul deal with slavery in a way that he doesn't. And to our modern ears, for many of us, these words are a disappointment. Likely, when you read these words, what you wanted to hear Paul say was, and masters, set your slaves free and repent of the sin of slavery. That's what we wanted to hear. But we as Christians must not forget that these words are not simply the words of a well-intended man named Paul. These are the actual words of God. And instead of saying, oh, Paul, if, if only we could have given you what we know now, we could have prevented you from looking so poorly today. You see, the Lord is no fool, and the Lord is good. And so we turn to this wise, good God to say, God, what does your word mean here, and how might we accurately apply it in our world today? On modern issues and modern distinctions of what would be called slavery and then the impacts of it in our own world today. Well, first of all, I want you to notice that in each of the three groups, I want you to step back for a second Paul does something that maybe you missed on the way. Paul does something that would have kind of jarred his original audience because of what was the social norm. Paul applies the ripple effect of honoring Christ by starting with the person that you would have thought would be mentioned last in each of the addresses. His audience would have expected him to address husbands first. But Paul addresses wives first and speaks to them. Fathers would have expected to be addressed first, but to children he speaks first. And masters, because of their status, would have expected to be addressed first in the letter. But Paul first looks to slaves and elevates them in a way that was completely foreign in his day. You see, we look at this and say not enough of a countercultural statement 
But in the first century, it was absolutely blow the doors open. People talked about it all week. It was the conversation of everyone because of what Paul said. And I want you to see it and understand it so that you can see that while we might initially have some disappointment, we ought to see it differently and see just how wise and good God is to lead this courageous leader to speak the words that he does in this moment. You see, beginning in verse four, the amount of space that Paul devotes in speaking to slaves says a lot. Notice, I mean, in verses four, five, all the way down to, to get to nine is devoted to him speaking to slaves. But then that last verse, he then turns to masters, and it's not a message that was pleasant to the ears for these guys. First of all, he instructs their actions as slaves, beginning in verse five, but anchors it to their humanity by saying, heart and soul. Notice what he says, obey your masters with fear and trembling and sincerity of your heart, cardia. And then he keeps going as you would Christ, but don't only work while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves to Christ, do the will of God from your heart. It's another word that can actually be translated as soul. So he's saying to slaves in front of everyone, including these guys that would have been masters, these guys have hearts and souls. And while seemingly obvious today, should have been obvious then in the first century as it was in the 17th century, slaves were treated as less than fully human. They were treated as though they didn't have hearts and souls. But Paul explicitly, God explicitly is speaking these individuals that you are discounting, they have heart and souls because I created them in my image. And God's word speaks a countercultural message of human dignity. In verse 7, he calls them slaves of Christ. And again, that might kind of jar us, but this isn't the first time that Paul has used this language of slaves to Christ. You want to know who else he calls a slave of Christ? Himself. In Philippians 1.1, Paul, a servant, a bondservant, a doulos is the Greek word of Christ. And then he says, you are servants, bondservants, slaves, doulos of Christ. And what he's saying is, guys, there is no distinction between us. None. We serve our king together. In verse 8, he says that one day, you will receive a reward from the Lord. In the worlds of slavery in which men and women are dehumanized, slaves have nothing coming to them at the end of life. They're soulless. They're not different from animals. But in front of masters, Paul speaks to slaves and says, because you have a soul and because you have a heart and because we are servants together, slaves to Christ together, you have a reward coming. A slave may be poor in this life, Paul is saying, but a payday is coming. But then, and this is one of the most confrontational to the culture at large statements that Paul makes in the entire New Testament. He speaks boldly and concisely to masters and he does something here of a transfer of ownership of every slave to Christ and themselves to Christ. I want you to see it in the text. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way without threatening them Look how he substantiates it, because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no favoritism with him. Paul overthrows slavery on the only ground strong enough to hold a new institution indefinitely, and that is Christ. There's only one master, he tells them, and we are all his servants, and that's what gives us unity, and it ought to be a manifest unity both in the house of worship and in the world at large when you are occupying it in any position you find yourself. Whether married, whether a parent, whether you are in this room today, he says, as a slave or a master, we are one. And there is one master, there is one Lord, and we are all equally his servants. You see, for years, the church of Christ, primarily the white church of Christ, used these verses to support the institution of chattel slavery in this country. This was the go-to passage. But when rightly understood, you see that Paul was actually speaking against it. He was overturning it. He was setting things right. He wasn't supporting it. 
This is the great gospel truth that we, we, Paul has already established and establishes in Romans 6. He says we are all one in Christ, but that's only, he brings us back to this truth because we're all slaves to sin. The exact same word used here in Ephesians chapter 6, until Christ sets us free. But in setting us free, it transforms the institutions we occupy in this life. Our freedom in Christ transforms the institution of the church as we submit to one another, voluntarily submitting and yielding to one another in love. Our freedom in Christ, each and every one of us, it transforms the institution of Christian marriage as wives voluntarily yield to their husbands in love and as husbands give up their lives in service to their wives. Our freedom in Christ transforms the institution of the family as children obey their parents in the Lord and as fathers raise their children, not in an exasperating way, but in the fear of the Lord, in training and instruction of the Lord. And then we see that our freedom in Christ transforms the institutions of this world in which we find ourselves as we conform our thinking and our actions according to the gospel. For Paul says in Romans 6, 17, but thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, you obey him now from the heart with a pattern of teaching that was handed over to you, having been set free from sin and now becoming enslaved to righteousness. So let me ask you a question. Does your life suggest that you're a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness? Because in this life, you're always a slave. But in Christ, you're free. But it's not a freedom to go and do whatever you want. Because left to your own, you'll run out and become entangled in this world again. And so I ask for you just in this moment of stillness, and I realize the time has gone long, But this message of Christ is what we need. We desperately need to see and experience the honor of Christ lifted up in the church today because the ripple effect is what we are desperate for in our lives. Your marriage needs Christ. Your parenting needs Christ. In our world, in our relationships with one another, in racial categories, it needs Christ above all else. And if you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, on the grounds of God's word, I call you to trust Christ today, to give your life to him. Father, I pray in this moment of stillness that we would just consider this one question. Does our life, when we look at all the parts, how we treat each other here, how we treat each other in our marriage, how we treat our children, how we treat those when we leave this place in our world, does it reveal that we are a slave to Christ or that we're a slave to sin? In any part of our life, God, where it shows we are a slave to sin, God, please, will you rescue us? God, advance your kingdom in our lives, God, here in the church, in our marriages, in our families. And as we leave this place, God, may it be obvious that we honor Christ above all else. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.